Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is a board-certified executive coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. I love the holiday season, but I don't love the cold weather. Just going to put it out there. Just say it. Um, but it's all right. I'm indoors. <laughs> I'm just an outdoors person, and I, I just love being outside. So I spend a lot of time, for example, on my back porch, and fortunately I've got a heater out there, and I try to stay out there all year, but sometimes it just it's still too cold. I don't like it. Anyway, I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. I shouldn't be complaining. Um, but I don't miss, I don't miss the harsh winters. I just don't. I've seen enough felt, you know, it was great. It was great. I love it. You know, snow for a day and then go away and leave me alone. It's all, it's all good. Anyway. Hey, welcome to episode 104 of the leadership window. My guest today is I, man, when we've, we've connected now offline for a little while. And just had these conversations. And I love these because these are the kinds of conversations I know we can just have and not worry about the scripting and and all of that. We've got some topics and I have some questions I definitely want to ask Brenda. But you're just, I think, going to get to just sit in on a couple of coaches talking about our experiences and what we're finding out there. And we're both still kind of just living and learning it ourselves too. But Brenda Harrington is the founder and CEO of Adaptive Leadership Strategies. And uh, I'm going to make this brief, but basically uh, Brenda coaches and consults organizations, uh, helping them grow top talent. She helps with succession planning. She helps with leadership coaching, uh, um, all, all things about boosting productivity in organizations, engagement, uh, developing creative solutions to complex challenges, all those things that the listeners of our show are going, yeah, 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 give me that. Um, that's what Brenda does, and she is certified to do so. She's a credentialed member of the International Coach Federation, um, and she's a, a graduate of Virginia Tech, so I love her already. And uh, in addition to her work as uh, the CEO and founder of her consulting company, she's also an author. And her book, Access Denied, goes in depth on the countless issues surrounding the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, particularly in the workplace and the, the disparities and discrimination that occur in the workplace. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. This probably is a little bit of a potpourri, a little bit of a hodgepodge of different leadership topics that I want to get to with Brenda. But um, Brenda, man, I've been excited about this. Thank you so much up in Northern Virginia right now, but thanks for joining us on the program. We are so glad to have you. Not as happy as I am to be here, Patrick. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you're just, uh, I know you're going to add just tremendous value to to all of us and our, our listeners. Um, uh, Brenda, I'm going to start just by letting you do a better job of introducing yourself than I just did. Just, just you know, let us know who you are a little bit. Who are we, who are we talking with? How did you get into this space? What led you to this space here? Just tell us briefly who you are and what you're doing in the world. Thank you for that. Well, you know, when I think back over the arc of my career, more than 30, 35 years, I know that I've always been a people first person. I haven't always been able to honor that. Uh, (laughs) But in 2007, 2008, as the executive vice president of a regionally held firm, I was in the middle of a pretty challenging acquisition and it was focusing on my executive team and people that saved me and, and saved those who were going to land on their feet. And that's when I really discovered the power of coaching and other personal interventions. I always knew it was there, but that's when it really, that's when I got clarity around it. And so I decided that's the way I wanted to spend the balance of my career. And that's when I started to focus on developing a practice. Everybody gives me a hard time because my URL, Adaptive Leadership Strategies, is so long. But it was important to me that the name of the company communicated what we were doing. And so I spent a couple of years 
uh, earning certifications for coaching and psychometric assessments and the things that I needed to get started. And I hung out my shingle, if you will, in 2011. And it's just been a, a very rewarding and gratifying 12 years so far. Wow. Well, it is. And um, I, I'm curious, you, you mentioned that sort of transition period out of that company when you realized the value of coaching. Was that because you were you were getting coaching from someone who was effective at it and it was helpful or you were finding that you had an innate coaching ability and you were coaching at that time? All of the above. Oh, okay. All of the above. Many of the people in that organization had literally grown up there professionally. And so they were just blindsided by what was happening to them. And it's, it's nothing that they anticipated. They, they didn't see it coming. And, and it was it, it coincided with the financial crisis, right? The meltdown and, and a lot of things were going on at one time. And I found that uh, if we were able to kind of zoom out and take a different approach and really get them to focus more on themselves and what they could do, you know, we were we were in a better position to emerge successfully. As, as successfully as possible in those under those circumstances, at least. Yeah. Now you're, um, I know that your profile of work as a coach and consultant is pretty widespread. I mean, from engagement to productivity to, you know, culture building, leadership, st probably strategy, probably all those things. But your book is focused on, your book is Access Denied, and it is looking at the disparities and discrimination that occurs in, particularly in the workplace but uh, it's a different, I will tell you, this is a different kind of, um, this is a different kind of book on this topic because it's so based in stories. But I guess my first question for you on that is, are you, is the DEI space, as we call it, where you spend a majority of your coaching and consulting, or is it just a fabric that's woven into all of it? How, how does that space fit in for you? My wheelhouse really is leadership development. I work a lot with global leaders. Uh, I believe if you get the people part right, the rest will happen. The rest will come. Oh, here, and here. so I, I really focused on a kind of a top-down approach. You know, what's 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 the culture that's being cultivated, honored, rewarded, all those things. The, I don't I don't hold myself out as a DEI expert, but for my life experience and the experiences that I've had with clients. The book is not something that was ever on my bucket list. The book was inspired, sadly, by the, the events of 2020 that hit me as a call to action like nothing had before. And so I just wanted a way to get into the conversation, to create awareness, to provide a mechanism, perhaps a resource for people who were experiencing some of the types of things I talk about in the book, but also perhaps even more so to create awareness for people who just weren't getting it and who aren't getting it. As far as I'm concerned, inclusion is not discretionary. It's, it's a leadership imperative. Yeah. And yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, that's kind of where the book came from. I wasn't sure how it would be received. Uh, but, but that's, that's where it, that's the beginning. Yeah. Well, I mentioned that it it has a tone and a flavor that's a little bit different from some of the other books I've read in this space. And it it I guess for me, the the lever or the mechanism that's used so powerfully there is that you open up with your story. And, you know, I, I I've got a, a friend and colleague here in South Carolina that talks at length about Look, you can argue with tenants, you can argue with politics, you can argue with whatever, but you can't argue with my story. <laughs> you know, it's like this is my story. Right. Listen to my story, acknowledge my story. This this is me. This is this is my life. This is what has happened. This is what I've seen and experienced. And you open up in your book. I don't I don't want to give too much. I want people to buy this book and we're going to direct them to it, but I'll te we'll tease them a little bit here. I was immediately struck at the beginning of this book. I mean, it, it reads almost, I could almost see like a, a, the beginning of a movie. Like you can see it on screen, how you describe your, I think you're six years old. You're not quite at your seventh birthday and you live next door. You lived in, in Mount Vernon, New York, your, your family there in a, in a proudly in a mixed neighborhood. And you're living there as a, you know, a, um, 
an African-American family in a mixed neighborhood in New York in the 60s. I don't think I need to say more about that. I, we, we know what all the things that are going on in the 60s. Right. And you live next door to a, a, a synagogue. And these Hebrew children who are in school there would come out during recess and invite you over to play with them. And there was never any question about it. You didn't have it that, that yeah, these are kids. I'm going to go play. And you were welcomed and accepted and you welcomed and accepted them. And you didn't, you didn't see things any differently. Um, and a lot of this had to do with how your parents taught you to see and not see things and that you can be anything you want to be, do anything you want to do in your life. And, and that led you into a story then about you, you fast forwarded to your seventh birthday when you, you just at, by chance asked your mom that day, if you could wear your hair out and I'll, you can describe what that means. Um, you describe a little bit in the book and explain what that means for people who might not understand. I didn't. Um, but you know, not in braids and just, um, not the typical way that a young black girl might have worn her hair to school in the sixties and your, your mother obliged and you, I don't, you didn't describe it, but she didn't have any question about it. She didn't, she's yeah. And you did. And then you come home with a note for your mother from the teacher or the principal saying, eh, let's not do that. That's distracting. Right. That story, I'm going to stop there and I'm going to let you kind of, you know, take us through, you know, take us through the key drivers from there in your life that, that started to reveal to you what was really happening out there and where you fit into the world. Cause you, you tell so many stories and and about your sister, uh, in that same community, um, I, I, well, I just don't even know where to go from there. Cause I, we can't, we don't have time to just talk about the whole book and your whole life, but that immediately I was drawn in instantly. Like I want to know more about this story and I can't relate to that. I can't imagine what that would feel like to, I, I can't, there's no way I can relate to that. It blows yeah. it like today. Uh, you know, I think for most people we go, really, <laughs> ah, really, but yeah, really that, that really happened. Take it from there a little bit about what the rest of the book really is about, I guess. Maybe that would be the way to do it. How do you go from that story to what your point is in the book? And and again, sort of how you got to where you are today. Certainly. And I want to touch on something that you you said. You, you did such a beautiful job of, of setting that up. You say today, really? Yeah. I don't want anyone to lose sight of the fact that just within the last mm-hmm. few years, something called the crown act has been passed mm-hmm. are you familiar with the yeah, crown yeah, act yeah 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 okay yeah that makes it illegal to discriminate against someone yeah. because of their hairstyle yeah we're still having to legislate style. yeah yes exactly exactly and and that really in, in metaphorically speaks very much to why i wrote the book so the book is a compilation of stories i had some wonderfully generous contributors share their stories, most in the first person, a couple we had to be more a little bit more discreet. But I wanted each story to serve as an archetype for the things that have happened and are happening, just based on bias, judgment, misunderstanding. I hate to use the term prejudice, but, you know, because of the differences and because we focus so much more on differences than we do on likeness. And I believe that, I I certainly don't believe that that's always malicious, but I think that people can be pretty cavalier about the impact that that has on the people who are the subject of that type of treatment, dismissiveness, disrespect. And so I really, and and as you saw, you know, each story, each chapter, uh, I've I've in, in each chapter I've included reflection questions and and just things for people to to help people process, because I really want people to pause and think about some of these things differently. Well, the and book thank, it absolutely makes you do that. Thank you. I thank you. you said something just now that I think I want to go ahead and touch on and get your view on this. Okay. I, I say this as a, as a, you know, a white man in the world, you said we, the focus more on differences than likenesses. Mm-hmm. I am finding that an interesting 
dynamic because from my seat, it sometimes appears that we're getting in our own way with this DEI work. I've, I've mentioned it several times with several different guests on this show. So this isn't new for our listeners. Um, it almost, it almost seems to me sometimes like in our, um, passionate effort to move, you know, like to end racism and prejudice and biases and discrimination and all those things. It almost seems we're, we're focusing more on the differences. Like I, you call it identity politics or whatever you, but we, there, there are so many different focus now on this group and that group. And, um, I, I just wonder sometimes if we actually, if DEI work and approaches sometimes gets in its own way from what it's actually purporting, intending, trying to do. I don't know if I can explain it any better than that, but it just seems that way to me. And I wonder from your perspective, if there's any, if you see any um, alignment with that in, in your work and, and that that sometimes is an inhibitor actually to what we're trying to do. What are your thoughts on that? Honestly. I, I I understand what you're saying totally. And the challenge is that I think the intent behind terms like DEI is to call attention to things. And then, you know, once once you begin to do that, then it then it seems like it's div- divisive, right? Divisive. But if you don't do that, then then these blind spots remain. Then then these things become invisible. You know, and this is so you hear terms like microaggressions and things like that. So it's it's a diff, it's a challenge. It's difficult because on the one hand, you want to create awareness. You want to call these things out and, and you want to make others aware of the impact that they have, the triggers, you know, because if, it, if it's not your walk, Patrick, there's no way that you would understand the impact of certain things on me. Absolutely. Right? And so how do I effectively and constructively make you aware of it? I'm not asking you to, you know, I say all the time, hearts and minds can change, but you cannot change someone else's heart or someone else's mind, right? You can create awareness and then it's up to them. It's up to them. Well said. So, yeah. And so that's the, that's the challenge, but I agree with you. And then if, like anything else, you know, everybody clams on to the term and turns into all the things it's not supposed to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let me, let me ask you this. You, you mentioned, yeah, you know, like just recently the crown act, for example, like this stuff is still here. It's and, and even, even the, the more visible historically documented, you know, the civil rights movement, I mean, heck slavery for that matter was not that long ago. We keep, th- we, you know, we act like this was thousands of years ago. It wasn't, it's, it is an issue. It is, well, it is a, a culture and a dynamic and a, a, a norm in life that has carried over in ways we just don't even, I just don't think we can begin to, to grasp and <laughs> acknowledge, you know, it, it, it drives me nuts when I hear people say, get over it. You know, we've moved past that. We don't have slaves anymore. Of course we don't. I mean, thankfully we, we have, you know, we've, we've addressed it to the degree that we've addressed it, obviously, but you can't deny what that does today for humans. Our entire view of the world is shaped and by the, things that didn't happen that long ago, right here in this country. No, no. that's right. And the, I don't mean to cut you off, but the vestiges of slavery are alive and well. Yeah. You know, when you talk about things like generational wealth and just there, there are so many fractures in our social system and our in our political system and society that are drawn directly from slavery and and the Jim Crow era. Yeah. That still have profound impact on people today. So you here, this leads to my question. If I think about your story that we just told six year old Brenda Harrington, Mount Vernon, New York, um, in a mixed neighborhood next to a synagogue in the sixties and all the things that, that have transpired since then that have shaped your worldview. What I wonder how, how similar do you think black kids growing up today 
How similar, what's changed and what hasn't changed, do you think? If you think about black kids growing up today, what do you think's changed for them? What would would you imagine is different for them than was for you? And what would you imagine is probably the same? Unfortunately, the same is uh, being subjected to attitudes that are not supportive of them. I think it depends on where they are. You know, we didn't cast as wide a net back in those days in terms of, you know, where we lived. We were we were much more community based. Now people are, are, you know, things there's a lot more diversity in communities. But, you know, I can think of circumstances, countless circumstances right here in the area where I live. When I think about friends raising children in a black children, minority children in a predominantly white suburb in a predominantly white school system, you know, being just immediately discounted, you know, not being supported and things like that, you know, oh, he's just whatever, and, you know, just being marginalized. And so, you know, even getting a child through the public school system is is, is like a full-time, can be like a full-time vocation, especially if a child, you know, has some challenges, right? And you, you hold that up to the experience of a, a white counterpart for, you know, unfortunately, in many cases, it's very different. Uh, you know, we don't always have the resources for interventions such as uh, tutoring and special, you know, services and education and things like that, ancillary services. So, so then, you know, the disparities begin to grow. What really concerned me, and I, I don't know that this is as prevalent now, but if we go back 10, 15 years, we went through this whole period where I heard young people saying, well, I don't see color. Everybody's the same, right? Yes, everybody's the same, perhaps. When you're at school, you're playing, you're, you're, you're teammates in sports, but sometimes things change, you know, when you go home with your, with your classmate to visit or, you know, when you're invited to the prom or whatever happens, right? And then you begin to live the reality of of how people feel it's not universal nothing is but it's still pretty prevalent and i would say pervasive i think that's an uh i've had a similar conversation with with others uh, where we i remember so i i graduated i went to high school in the 80s the early 80s and in a in a very tiny rural deep south community in ringgold louisiana And I have often talked about how I didn't like truly 100% truly. I didn't really see, we had a very mixed uh, population in the school and I just never, I don't remember ever feeling like uh, seeing the black students, my black uh, fellow students any differently we were friends with them. We hung out with them. We laughed with them. We, I think, respected each other. You know, we, I never felt that. I'm sure it was, I'm sure it existed probably maybe some around the older kids actually. But then a, a, a black friend of mine reminded me and, and he asked me this. He said, did you go to their house after school? Did you spend the night with them? Did they ever spend the night with you? Do you ever have, do you ever have a black friend spend the night with you? I went, Oh no, no. And he goes, why not? And I said, I have no idea why not. I know that it wasn't because, Ooh, I'm never, I would never have a black. It wasn't that, but yet we didn't do it. You yeah. know, you just, so I think you're, you're spot on with the, the relationships we had were limited and we were fine if it was compartmentalized to that. But yeah. I don't know if it was that we didn't know how to expand those relationships or somewhere deep in our heads, we believe we're not supposed to or what that was. But I found that an interesting dynamic when you ask that question. And do, did you go to their home for dinner? Did you spend the night? Did you go camping together? Did you? The, the answer was no and, for most people, I the, think. And it's that deep in your head right there thing that that, that <laughs> is it right there yeah. that you weren't supposed to. It was just, you know, common practice, you know, that they you know, it's, it's fine to socialize on the playground and do all those things. But when the sun goes down, everybody goes retreats to their respective corners of the world. Right. Yeah. And it's that deep down, uh, you know, idea 
that's embedded. And so when you go back to what we talked about a few minutes ago about the 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 purpose and perhaps efficacy of 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 DEI, that's what you got to crack. Okay. So when you look at me, when you look at someone who looks like me, do you automatically assume because of my skin tone that I am uh, less intelligent or literate? Do you automatically assume when you look at me that I uh, am of a profession, you know, particular profession? That story you refer you referred to the story about my sister and okay, no spoiler alert, but that's an example of that, right? This guidance counselor that she was relying on to help with career development told her to forget about nursing. Yeah, she if she wanted if she liked the white uniform, she could be a caterer or a hairdresser, right? So yeah. that kind of thing. Do you do you make judgments about me on site? And and that's what we've got to break apart. So when someone comes to me at this stage of my life, and you know whether they know what I've about my educational background and what I've accomplished or not, and they say things to me like, "Oh, you are so articulate. You speak so well." It's not a compliment, you know. Why wouldn't I? Why shouldn't I? Right. Yeah. And those are the kinds of things that are hard to penetrate. Yeah, I totally get that. And it, it is scary, I think, for people to face the potential of shining a light on some of those deep mind things. Like, I don't know if I want to know. Like, I don't know if I want to know what's really in there. You know what? Because you asked me, you know, when I look at you, do I see, and I, I can categorically say, absolutely not. And I think that's true. But is it like, do, are there things in me that I, I, like, I don't even where there was a term I used. Um, you mentioned microaggressions a while ago and it was in a workshop where we were talking about microaggressions. And I just thought there was something about the term that was bugging me. And I'll get your take on this. Um, I sometimes think that a more accurate word might be micro ignorance. Mm. That microaggression implies it's intentional. Because it's aggressive. It's small. It's a tiny little passive aggressive maybe. But microaggression sounds intentional to me. Whereas micro ignorance is, I don't even know what I'm I don't even know what I'm saying or how it comes off or how it might, how you might hear, hey, you're articulate and bright and intelligent. Like sometimes I might be meaning that condescendingly. And sometimes I might not even realize what, I, what that is and what that would sound like to you. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, I've said articulate and bright about white people too. Like, is it like, is it there? And I don't know it. That to yeah. me is, is, um, and to me, it's a little more palpable for someone who's trying to find, uh, find awareness in themselves is instead of being sort of accused of you're being aggressive, it's being illuminated as a blind spot. And, yeah. a, and a place of ignorance. So I don't know, micro ignorance is not a term that's out there in the lexicon, but it just seems uh, maybe more often than not, I don't know from my view that that's what we're really dealing with here. Well, how does that hit well, you? Let's create it. No, I, I agree with you because in many cases, I think it is in earnest meant as uh, a compliment. Somebody saying, wow, I didn't know. I didn't know black people could speak this way. You know, and that is. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't even mean that right? either, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but no, right. Exactly. So I, I like that and I'm going to respectfully ask your permission to borrow it. It's not and mine. I think I, we, yeah. We do have to coin new terms and terminology. If you reflect on the, the, the beautiful foreword that was written for the book by Dr. Christy Pekikaro, Christy coined the term, uh, gaslighting, discriminatory gaslighting. I'd never heard that until her uh, NPR interview talking about that. Mm. So please feel free. We, we need more language and more descriptors. I love, I love your response to that. Let's create it. Uh, that, yeah. You see, that's a yeah. good coach right there. I love it. Um, let's shift for a minute toward the workplace. Sure. Cause I know that yes. the book does deal a lot with the disparities and discrimination that happens regarding the workplace. Now it turns right. out that our work is part of our lives. It's not separate from our lives. And, uh, so, so we're talking about some of the same stuff, but this can get institutionalized inside the workplace. And, um, 
here's here's my question for you. It's it's a very specific question, and I'm going to preface it with a uh, a um, oh, what's the word? I, an opinion of mine. And mm-hmm. My opinion is that for us to really take the next step toward what we're trying to achieve with diversity, equity, inclusion, respect, all of that is that at some point we've got to move from preaching it to teaching it. And I think that there's a lot of still preaching it that is dogmatic and it's, uh, it feels to some people still accusatory or the preaching of DEI itself can, can come off as condescending to people. I'm interested, always interested, always inspired and illuminated when I'm, when someone is teaching me some principles of it rather than preaching at me about it. So what I like to know, for, for example, we had, I, and I've talked about this a lot cause it struck me so well. We had Dr. Sean Edwards on our show who does a lot of D, she is a DEI expert and she was at the Citadel at the time. She was their chief diversity officer at the Citadel. And I asked her, well, you know, tell me what you do. What does a DEI officer do? Like, what, what is the work? I get the concept, but what are you actually doing? And she gave an example uh, from the curriculum, from some of the curriculum about the narratives, the stories, the case studies they would use, you know, read, read this story and tell me, who do you see? What do you see? Who can relate to this and who cannot maybe relate to this? And where is the balance in that? And so looking literally at the content of the textbooks, you know, are we talking about Becky? Are we talking about Shamika? Are we talking about um, Ahmad? You know, and I thought, well, see, now that's what I want to hear. That's what I want to learn more of is let's uncover those practical things that we can actually go and do. So here's my question. As you have consulted and worked within workplaces, can you share what examples come to mind of success? Like where you found an organization or an individual went, oh, you're right. There it is. Man, I, I missed this opportunity. And they, 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 they changed a practice. They, they advanced something. They, they institutionalized a new mindset and became more aware of it. Do you, do you have examples of, of, what you could point to specifically of organizations that have applied practical things and, and gained toward this aspiration. Yeah, I, I wish I could. I will say that what I've heard you say, what you just shared is affirming because that is the exact approach uh, that I take with the course that we've developed around the book, you know, just using the stories as cases and say, okay, we're, what does this sound like to you? Have you seen this, you know, and what can you do really focusing on, on senior leadership? And so, you know, some of the initiatives uh, over the last couple of years in particular focused on inclusion. Diversity is one thing you can make the numbers look great. That's right. You know, we've got this percentage, that percentage, but it's, it's inclusion in my mind where the rubber meets the road. And what I see in many cases is that we get to the water, we get to the edge of the cliff and it's like, oh, wait a minute. So you mean in order for this to happen, we have to do this or we have to do that or we have to change that? Well, I don't know. And they, they dial back a bit because unfortunately, the the general sentiment, and I don't like to categorize, but it just, it's rinse and repeat. The general sentiment seems to be if I, if I let, if I give you something, then I lose something, Right. And so it's a question around the value proposition. I do see uh, intention around bringing people into bigger conversations and decision making and things like that. But I also see uh, a resistance to really let go of the reins, right? It's, It's monitored, it's measured. And, and that's what we've got to really focus on. Yeah. So where do you think the blind spots mostly show up in organizations then? I realize it's difficult to kind of find those specific successes of where things were, were um, implemented, integrated, that, that led to some metric. But 
Where, where do you find the most common challenges showing up repeatedly? I think it goes back to what you said about, you know, just beliefs that are embedded deeply, right? It's, it's how we think, okay. Uh, oh, look, there's a dog. So uh, I know I've got to walk him two or three times a day. We function, and in the book, you, I talk about, and in my course, I go into more detail about schemas, the shortcuts we use to to make our way, to make meaning of the world, right? To interpret our environment. Yep. And so when when those things show up in the workplace and 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 they're at a you know at the discretion of a a team leader or a manager then what do you do with it and this is where accountability is so important so you cannot you cannot change the way a person feels or thinks or a person's beliefs but you can hold them accountable for their behavior as it relates to their obligation to an organization so what I see showing up is people, you know, not being included in uh, client-facing meetings and activities and presentations and and whatever, right? Not not being given the same visibility. Uh, so, what are we doing with that? Are we looking the other way, or are we holding the the management manager accountable? for that you know why why is everybody there but brenda or where you know what is brenda's role in this project and things like that and so that's where i think there's that's a start that's a starting point yeah and and it isn't always related to race either i mean this whole inclusion thing someone and i don't remember if it was sean or this might have been raven solomon who who shared this with me she said what about the front desk receptionist Mm-hmm. Like I, oh, yeah. I, regardless of what her race and ethnicity is, but let's take the front desk receptionist. He, you know, he or, or her. And, um, how often do we ask them, you know, so when we make decisions about how we deal with customer facing interactions, are we actually asking the receptionist? Are we actually bringing them into the conversation? The face of the, the, per, the first person they see when they come in are we spending time connecting with the receptionist when we walk in to work each day, making the same kind of connections with them as we are with our vice president posse in the, you know, down the hall. And you think about those things as a leadership tenant. You said inclusion is really where the leadership tenant part of this. Um, it's not, it's not just about race and ethnicity that most undoubtedly does show up there a lot but that's not the only place it shows up. So it's blind spots behind blind spots. Right. Right. They're deep. Yeah. Um, every organization I'm working with Brenda and I do a, a lot of my work in the nonprofit sector, leadership coaching and what I call strategy coaching. Cause I, I apply a coaching approach to all the work, but when I'm working with a board on strategy for an organization, there there's not, I mean, Literally, I don't think there's an organization I've worked with over, well, since 2020 (laughs) that doesn't have DEI on their radar. We need, where, where does DEI fit into our strategic plan where we got to have that in there. And some of them want it authentically. And some of them want it superficially, if I'm being honest and if they're being honest and I've had some of them be honest and say, yeah, I know we, we kind of got to figure out like what we're really trying to do here versus putting it on our website. Here's a question for you. I, I have a bent on this, and um, but I'll, I'll reserve it for a minute. Do you see DEI work with organizations? Does the work fall under strategic framework? Do you, do you put DEI in your strategic plan as strategy? Or is DEI more the fabric of the value part of the organization. And I get asked that a lot in strategic planning. Hey, does this belong here in our strategic plan? Do we need strategy carved out for around DEI? Cause we got to get intentional about it. Right. Or should this be more of a value statement? And I'll just stop there and let you just respond to that. And I'll, I'll share, I'm happy to share some of my experiences on it and my bent on it, but I'm, I'm curious as to where your head goes on that question. To the latter, I, I really think it should be part of the fabric and value statement, but that goes back to the culture that leadership is cultivating, right? 
Now, and, and you took me right back into a retreat that I facilitated about three months ago, uh, where this came up as, as, as part of the strategy conversation. And the designated DEI officer was visibly shaken and emotional because it's like, what, you know, what are you talking about, right? Is this who we are or is this just something we're trying to do? Uh, and I think that initially you have to be intentional about helping people to see what that means and what the expectation is and how it relates to who the, 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 the organization wants, you know, what the organization wants to be, what they want to bring to the world, all of those things. But I would think that ideally you'd grow out of that, right? Once people begin to get on board, it's kind of like training wheels, if you will, on a bicycle. Um, but I definitely, and it's maybe just too idealistic, but culture and fabric for sure. So I tend to lean in that direction as well with a caveat. I think the DEI needs to be a part of the fabric, the DNA, the culture. It's a value. It's not just a value statement. It has to be right. an actual behavior parameter and, and, and values parameter. But there are times when specifically it is appropriate to bring it into strategic work. For example, if one of my primary methods and approaches, which is how I define strategies, if one of my primary methods and approaches for expanding our donor base is to reach into untapped markets and draw in a more diverse like if there, if there's a data point somewhere that says, man, our, uh, you know, our donor base, our board, your board matrix is a data point. It tells you who's on your board, what the composition is. If my data tells me my board's not very diverse. Well, okay. Then I have a strategy that now, now there's something sp specific to say, let's intentionally, yes, go about diversifying our board, diversifying our donor base. Um, organizations that are trying to make social impact and they're seeing a third grade reading gap among white kids, brown kids, black kids, that's stark. They might strategically say, we got to narrow that gap. And that means getting at some inclusive and equitable practices in right. how we're bringing. So in those cases, the data informs strategy. Yes. But just to put it in your strategic, I'll be honest with you. I had a, I had a potential client. We, I put a, we put a proposal in and I got a response saying, we loved your proposal, but it didn't have anything about equity in it. And so we're going to go with a different consultant. Like the, 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 the word equity wasn't in my proposal to help them articulate their strategy. And my take was if equity needs to be a part of your work, then let's, we'll facilitate that process and let's uncover that. But the, the idea for them was that I didn't use the word in my proposal. And I just thought, well, that's, I don't know how superficial, how much more superficial you can be than that. But from yeah. my, from my standpoint, they might've completely just, I think their intentions were probably good, but have a conversation with me. Let's talk about how we get at equity yeah. and diversity and inclusion. So yeah I, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's more value-based, but there, but what does the data tell us in terms of where our work can actually be applied and where it's needed the most? In, right. In right. Space? And in a situation like that, listen, it, what, what's the lost leader, if you will, what, what gets me in right. And, and then what, what, what gives me access to begin to do what really needs to be Good done. Question. Good question. Good question. Yep. Wow. All right. Let's, um, let's shift gears just a little bit. I could talk all day with you about <laughs> this. It's always just so when uh, we need to have these conversations, we really we do. do. We do. Um, I want to ask you about a couple of uh, more general leadership terms or different, sure. different dimensions of leadership. Your company is called adaptive leadership strategies. And, um, that term means different things to different people and adaptive leadership is a, is in and of itself a body of work and leadership. I'm curious yes. as to where, how, how did you arrive at that title? What does it actually mean for you? How did I arrive when I was on the beach in 2008 or nine, trying to come up with a name and see what URLs were available? <laughs> oh, I can relate. 
you know, it's like, okay, here's one that's available. It's long, but it says what I wanted to say, right? Uh, but what it means to me is the ability to be nimble, you know, mm. the ability to to really be present and in the moment and not be over committed to any one way of doing or being, which is the way I've led my life. And it's what I see. The absence of that is what I see uh, that holds so many people back. Well, we've got to do it this way. And we said we want to do it that way. And now we're going to, you know, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any idea at the time how relevant that would be fast forward 10 years. My God, I, I talk to clients now about, you know, post COVID circumstances and how it's influenced or impacted their leadership. And I'm, you know, I hear, oh, well, best practices. I said, stop saying that. Stop, stop saying that because it is the first day on the job for all of us, okay, we, we are charting a new course and the ability to be, the willingness to be curious and the ability to be innovative and just open your mind to, be, to thinking differently is, is, is what will save you. <laughs> Right. Uh, so, uh, by the way, I'm the word best practice. I have other issues with it. <laughs> uh, someone r runs a program in their organization and they like it. And so they call it a best practice and suddenly it yeah. becomes a best oh. practice. Like, well, yeah. what makes that a best practice and why would that be a best practice for us, even if it worked for you? Um, so, Leah, let's explore it. But, yeah, I've always had I, I like the term promising practice. And yeah, I think, which I think yeah. is more adaptive and, you know, does this have promise? Does this have potential? How could we make this work kind of thing? I love it. Nimble. I love the present in the moment. Yeah. Gotta be, gotta be. And that's adaptive. I'm just thinking out loud here. Uh, that's adaptive because the next moment will be different. <laughs> the last the moment, moment yeah. was different. It, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I talk, uh, I've been, my son shared a, a quote with me from the Greek philosopher, um, Heraclitus. Um, a man cannot step in the same river twice because he's not the same man and it is not the same river. Not the same river. And that's adaptive leadership in a nutshell, isn't it? I mean, being it present is. right now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I love that. So another term that I know comes up for you a lot and for a lot of other leaders is the term authentic leadership. And that's one of those yeah. buzzwords, right? Oh, authentic leadership. Let's be authentic leaders. And that just sounds right, right? It does. It sounds right. It, yeah, it makes sense. Let's be authentic. Let's be real. I guess that's what that means. But what does it really mean? What is authentic leadership? And how's that any different from any other kind of leadership? You know, <laughs> I laugh at these terms that have become, you know, almost pop culture and jargon, you know, Aren't because they? Yeah. But they're, they're real. They're just, they mean they're something. Real. And 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 you know, I don't know if we called it authenticity way back when, mm. but but it's always been so much a part of me. And it goes back to those stories that we talked about. We're moving away from that, but it's just like, okay, so if if you're not going to accept me because of this, because of that, then why should I even try to get in character? I'm just going to be who I am. I, cause I, you know, I want to know, you know, who, who I am to you. Mm. I think that, uh, that really took hold of me in my first job out of undergrad school. Uh, I was with mobile oil in those days. I was, I was, I was young. I was, cause I, I was a 16 year old, uh, high school graduate. So I graduated from college. I was 20 years old. And I was in one of those management development programs or whatever we call them back then. And I was supervising people who had been with, with the company longer than I had walked this earth. <laughs> it wasn't pretty. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to emulate behavior. There was no real training, right? I, I was trying to, oh, okay, I guess I should say this. I should look like this. I should, you know, all this. And when I just shook all that off and allowed those people, not all, it didn't work all the time, but, you know, when I allowed people to get to know me and we were able to connect personally, things shifted. All right. And that's why authenticity is so important to me. I, I'm not into, you know, 
code switching for sure to reach back to our previous conversation, but I'm just not into being anyone other than who I am. And I think that when people allow others to get to know them as, as individuals, there's more of an opportunity to develop trust and to build meaningful relationships and to develop a capacity for influence. Leadership is not about authority and me telling you what to do, hiding behind my title, right? It's about whatever belief you may have in, in what I'm here doing and here to do that enables us to work together effectively. Uh, yeah, that's the other half of of it, isn't of authenticity. Like the first half is be yourself. Yeah. But the goal is influence. So right. there, there's a um, there's a an executive coach and author that I got to spend some time with back in the early 2000s named Kevin Cashman, and one of the best books I've ever read on leadership. I'll 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 refer it for you. It's called Leadership from the Inside Out. Yeah. And it takes a very psychological look at who we are as leaders, our shadow beliefs, as he calls them in these things. But he defined leadership at the time as authentic self-expression that creates value. And so yeah. he, he, he talked about a, the three-legged stool. One, it has to be authentic because eventually your people will see through superficial right. and they won't follow you. Second, it has to get expressed like that's what leadership is. It's that influence. You're not going to influence somebody without somehow expressing the, the, the aspiration, the vision, the path, the belief, the, you got to express it. But the third thing is where we often miss it. It has to add value. Right. So, you know, we know a lot of authentic self-expressors. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm myself yeah, like, Hey, if it comes in my head, it comes out my mouth. That's just who I am. You're just going to have to deal with it. Okay, yeah. great. Uh, that's, that's authentic. We're talking about here. Yeah, that's <laughs> authentic and it's expressed, but it doesn't necessarily create value. In fact, sometimes that can be destructive. So I love it. You said it, but you said it differently. It's about being myself, but then it's also about the goal of influencing and working together. Right. Right. I and and people don't realize, thank you. People don't realize how important it is to allow other people in. I've had so many people say to me, well, you know, I keep my my personal life separate from my professional life. And, you know, I said, well, then you're just going to be an icon. You know, you're just going to be, you know, an email address because people have got to know who you are as a person uh, if, if you if you want to get anything out of them. Mm. I said, surely. So I, I use this metaphor of a, of a, of a house. Think, think of a, a just a small, here we call them, split hall colonials they come in different names but basically you walk into the front door of a home within your line of sight you may see a living room dining room maybe part of a kitchen a little bit of a family room and then perhaps stairs going upstairs so just a up to the second floor so just imagine a velvet rope across that staircase what is it that you don't mind people having access to anything they can see from the front door and what's off limits up those stairs mm. okay wow Wow. I like to cook. Golf is my favorite sport. My son plays soccer. What's the harm? And just having, you know, just letting people. And when you find that commonality with people, it's like, oh, okay. He is human. He's not a droid. He's not a bot, right? He has a life. Then you, you have an opportunity to, to develop something meaningful. That is especially profound in today's work environment, isn't it? where we are, we're remote. Our meetings are on zoom from our homes. I mean, I'm coaching people who find it an, an incredible freedom, but others who are finding it really difficult because my home is sacred and I don't like having to, I don't like ha a lot of people keep their screens black on, on zoom because they don't want people seeing, you know, they don't want people seeing. I don't, this is my home. Like, I don't, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and yet, yeah, uh, we're humans before we're employees. That's right. Wow. That's right. Yeah. See, you're throwing stuff at me that I, we can't even like, like there's stuff where we have to go and I'm just going to have to noodle on it. <laughs> wow. That's uh, deep stuff. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, what are in the nonprofit space? And I, I'm asking this question because I know most of our listeners are in the nonprofit space. This is, this is a podcast about leadership. So we have others, but it's through a social sector lens. 
and I know you spend a lot of time with nonprofits. What are you seeing over and over? Like what, what are the top two or three challenges as a coach and consultant that keep popping up for you in organizations? Most people who find their way to the nonprofit, humanitarian, economic development, social uh, space, I'm trying to think, uh, I'm trying to think of another term. Anyway, most people are mission driven. They're there because they believe in the purpose. They, they're, they're there because they want to address a cause you know, some more personal than others, but they are emphatic about not being business people. Philanthropic is what I was trying to find. <laughs> They're emphatic about not being uh, business people. They don't want to be one of those people who's trying to increase shareholder value, and they don't want to be one of those people who's, you know, so they they set all of that aside, okay, and they just show up and they go to work. They don't take any time to think about how they're going to be together, how they're going to work together, how they're going to function as a unit, as an organ, as a team. And, you know, that's that's a problem. <laughs> Do you fold your towels in half or in thirds? I mean, you know, we need to know <laughs> if we're gonna share this space. So that's, that is the, that is one of the the simplest problems, if you will, to to address. But it's it's the problem that causes the most that creates the most noise and friction because we don't ever take the time to 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 focus on structure and policy and process, you know, and accountability and, and accountability. Oh well, no, I can't tell. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, you know. Yeah. So I'll just do it. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so it's it's that it's 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 just being so averse to borrowing a little bit from business process, right? And process improvement to to create a to build a better mousetrap. I couldn't man, that is spot on exactly <laughs> what I would have probably put up as at least one of my top two things I'm seeing too. And to to piggyback on it just a little bit, we do we often do a motivators assessment one of the psychometrics measuring seven, uh, dimensions of motivation across seven different elements. Am I motivated by altruism? Am I motivated by power, individualism, theoretics, regulatory, aesthetic, or um, I forgot what the seventh one is. It probably would not surprise you that most of the nonprofit leaders I coach, particularly the CEOs, have high altruistic motivation and low economic motivation. Yeah. And one of the biggest challenge or biggest sort of ahas for many of them is, you know, your board members might well be the opposite. Like you, you just because you're not motivated by the economic factors and that doesn't just mean the money, but it means the, the structure and the, you know, yeah, it might, it, are we getting, are we measurably advancing our mission in some way? What are those indicators? And, you know, just because I'm not, that doesn't drive me and motivate me doesn't mean it's not important to do. You still have to do it. So I see that all the time, the altruism or what Kim Scott sometimes calls ruinous empathy, you know, in, <laughs> yeah. in her book, Radical Candor. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I'm going to wind this down a little bit, but there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about. And that is the sort of psychology that happens in coaching because you, I think you are a coach. You strike me as a coach who understands probably more than the average coach about where psychology fits in. We, we're humans and we have stories as you have very eloquently um, demonstrated. Um, but unless I missed something, you're not a therapist or a licensed counselor I'm not. And yet that can, it can feel that way sometimes when you're coaching individuals. And we just talked about the work life balance, for example, and how our personal lives are a part of who we are. And our stories have made up our, our biases, our ignorances, our prejudices, our approach to leadership, whatever those might be. And I know that I've, I've come home sometimes and told my wife, well, I had four really good therapy sessions today <laughs> and I'm joking, of course. But because it feels that way sometimes with the people we coach, because succeeding in leadership requires our personal selves. And when our personal selves have issues, 
we're trying to address, overcome, whatever, they can get in the way. And those have to be a part of those coaching conversations. However, we say in coaching, consulting is more a focus on the past and uncovering and revealing maybe why something is the way it is today. Coaching is more about what's next. What's the, what, what do we do from here? And what's the, what's the future look like? So, um, just because of kind of how I've come to know you thus far, I know that the psychology fits in a lot. How do you draw that line? How do you balance that sometimes gray line when you're coaching your individuals and teams? We definitely have to dip into, you know, the, the, what is influencing behavior? You know, what, what brings you to this place? How did you develop this habit? Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, but then we've got to acknowledge that be able and willing to hold that as a data point and move forward. If they are not able to, if, if we keep going deeper into that and we keep going back and we keep going back. And when I was 12 and when, you know, when I was in college, all these, then I pause and I ask them, you know, to consider yep. a different resource. Right. And in some cases people are already engaged right. with a, with a therapist or a counselor. Right. Um, but I, and I'm very clear, I try not to make it about them and say, I, I'm not qualified. I'm not a counselor. Uh, I'm not a, ther- a licensed therapist. Okay, so I'm really not qualified to pursue this conversation at a, at a deeper level. It would be irresponsible of me to do that. Uh, and so, you know, if if it if it really is something that we can't move away from, I I just kind of put the brakes on. I think that's good. And, and I, I, you know, any of our listeners who happen to also be coaches, particularly if they've gone through a credentialing process, um, have that that's been drilled into us that we got to know when to refer and when something is out of our, out of our zone. I mean, it's an ethical decision. I can't pretend to be a therapist and play counselor with you. That's not something to, to play around with, but it's a, it is a, but it is a fine line because you got to, you do have to get personal. And you want to get personal. You want that openness and that trust to be able to acknowledge those things. And yeah, let's, you know, maybe remind ourselves every once in a while of that thing. But then now how do, how do we press forward? Um, one of the things that, that we do, and I, I don't know why I'm saying this, but just on my mind, since we're talking about it in, in counseling and therapy, the word triggers is used a lot. We say something, something triggers a thought or a mindset or a behavior. We use it in coaching too. We use it differently. We use triggers as intentional. Let's create some triggers, not triggers that remind us of the past, but triggers that make us aware in a moment to behave differently, to behave the way we're aspiring to behave and do what we're wanting to do. And so we'll set intentional triggers to create that sort of micro awareness. People we coach are macro aware. They know, yep, I'm, I'm too, you know, I'm too passive in meetings. I don't speak my mind. I want to change that. Okay, then how, what trigger can we create that will alert you when you're in the next moment where you have a chance to do it the way you want to do it? Um, I don't know if you use that term, but that's kind of, that's the, maybe the difference between coaching and consulting the way that we try to structure it in our work. I don't call it, I don't use the term triggers in that way, but I, I think in terms of signaling systems, oh, that's good. right? Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. But just something to, I'm not, I, cause I'm not going to be there to say, Hey, uh, uh, did you see that? <laughs> okay. Now this is what we're talking about. That's right. So they've got to, <laughs> yeah, they've got to come up with something on their own. And we do, we do try to co-create something that will help them to, you know, to, to really pause and think about taking a different approach to begin developing new habits. I talk a lot about, you know, what, what habit do we need to develop around this? What yep. will get you moving in a different direction? Yeah, man. Whoa, man, this is so good. So rich. Um, but let's, let's, let's wind this down. There's a couple of questions, Brenda, that I like to ask all my guests. Cause I love the stories that come with these and the different perspectives who comes to mind for you as that leader in your life. Um, who, who you would say has had dramatic impact on who you are today and, and how you approach leadership today. Who is that? Who's that person and why not that there's just one, but who immediately comes to mind? 
His name was Dr. Michael Olson. He was a professor that I uh, had uh, at Virginia Tech when I was in grad school. But more than just a professor, he was an industry consultant. So he brought real world experiences into the classroom, which I appreciated many others feared. Uh, but it was, it was, you know, we talk, uh, you hear a lot about, you know, the, the teacher that made a difference and all that. I was, well, you know, I was an adult before I, I got to that person. It was, it was Dr. Olson. We became good friends and, and stayed in touch, you know, until the time of his death about 10 years ago. Um, but I, I so admired his approach, not just to, uh, how he worked how he functioned in academia, which can be somewhat limiting, and I'll stop there on that. Um, but also in his role, you know, in the department as a department head, and and just some of the things that he was able to bring about uh, at that time in the program to meet the needs of the day. When I when I talk about being nimble and really being present and bringing things forward, he was. That's all of who he was. And he was one of the first people uh, professionally that I encountered uh, that that really, you know, made me feel it was almost like an affirmation. It was like, oh, okay, it's it's all right to be to think about things a little bit differently. It's all right to be committed to your approach and take take risks and chances. So, wow, what a tribute! Yeah, that's awesome. Last question: You got. 15 seconds from the mountaintop with a megaphone and all the leaders of the world are listening. What's your message for all the leaders of the world? What's the Brenda Harrington 15 second soundbite of leadership? That's no small question, right? Just give me 15 seconds of the essence of leadership from your point of view. But yeah, what would that be? What's that number one tenet for all leaders? I don't need 15 seconds. It's very simple. Mm. Humanity first. Mm. You started out our conversation with that people mm -hmm. first, people first. Yeah. Just had a conversation recently with, um, um, a consultant from the Netherlands named Paul Terwall. We were having this conversation about, um, if you put the employees first, they'll take care of the customers. That's exactly you right. You know, companies say, you know, our customer comes first. Hmm. Should they, <laughs> I don't know. They're people too, I guess. Right. I love it. Brenda, um, thank you, thank you, thank you for the generosity of your your time, your talent, your wisdom, your insight on this stuff. Um, you've made me richer for this conversation. I know you've done the same for our listeners. Thank you for joining us. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. Folks, this is one I would encourage you to go back, listen to it again um, with a pen in your hand and take some good notes. Lead on. <laughs>